Good afternoon. It's, it's really nice to meet everyone. So before I start talking, I just want to see a sign of thumbs up from the audience. Can you hear me? This is all working great. All right. Awesome. Uh, it, it's a cool like experience to do this, even though it's also like kind of humbling because <laughs> you're getting no feedback. So feel free to just jump in and cheer if you want to. Uh, uh, my name is Shane Hawthorne, and I'm the founder of a new service at AWS, even though it's not completely new. We actually launched our preview uh, last year at reInvent. Now I'm happy to report that we're generally available. We have actually three ground station sites that are up and operating right now two in the United States, in Oregon and Ohio, and then one in Bahrain. And we have like another four additional ones that will start to be uh, offered up and launched to the rest of the world uh, in close succession in the next uh, months. And I also am very honored and happy to be here with a early advocate and colleague, friend and mentor, Dr. Tom Soderstrom from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory who is uh, representing a really cool use case to talk about our uh, customers using Ground Station and how everything came together to support their mission, the Asteria satellite. And so without further ado, let me also tell you a little bit about this kind of presentation style. You guys obviously can all hear on the headphones and it keeps the other groups from hearing us, but we are going to be doing questions and answers at the end of this because both Tom and I really enjoy that. It's a great way to get customer data to help us build our service better. So we will be passing a microphone around to you to get questions so that everyone else can hear it on their headphones. So if you have questions, Please, uh, at the end, you can raise your hands. And uh, one of our software development managers, Brian Robbins over there, is going to walk around with the microphone and give it to you. So don't start asking your question until you get the mic. That way, everybody will hear your question. So again, thank you for coming. So I'm going to give you guys an introduction to the AWS Ground Station. And then I will be providing kind of an overview of the customer way of looking at how the ground station operates and then even culminate with a demonstration of scheduling a satellite contact, what you watch for when you do that scheduling, watching the satellite contact happen. A contact is when we actually use our antennas to communicate with the spacecraft and downlink data from it. And then after that, I'll walk through just a little bit of an understanding of how the system and the control plane worked when that demo was going on. And then I'm going to hand it over to Tom, who's going to give you uh, some customer side view of how it was to use ground station for Asteria. So first off, what is AWS Ground Station? AWS Ground Station is a service that AWS is doing where we're providing you a fully managed ground station as a service. So around the world, AWS has a number of ground uh, of AWS regions, availability zones, and presences in those countries to offer AWS services and features and connectivity to our customers. What we're doing with AWS Ground Station is we're integrating a ground station as a service in close proximity to our data centers so that satellite operators and users of satellite data Hey, how's that when you get, you get claps even in the middle of your presentation? So, uh, so it's, uh, we actually use our, these ground stations to enable customers to downlink data from those satellites to the cloud. And it's no commitment, it's just like any other AWS service. You're paying as you go so you can scale. 
If you only have one satellite and you only want to talk to it five minutes per day for a little while, you can use the system in that way. And then suddenly you need to ramp up and you want to communicate and downlink data for 40, 50, 60 minutes a day. You can do that without having to buy these different ground stations to support yourself. And like I told you, because it's in close proximity to the AWS uh, data centers in that region, you're going to get very low latency. And when the data comes through the satellite uh, ground station antenna, you're actually going to be able to use AWS services to uh, compute and convert that data into something that you can use and make products for your customers and distribute them that the products to the customers over AWS seamlessly without any speed bumps or anything slowing you down. We're using what we call self-service scheduling. I will run you through a GUI and a console view of how we can do the scheduling, but we then have an API that you can use to do all of this scheduling as well in an automated way. And it's actually easier and faster to do it via the API. And the API actually even provides you a little bit more functionality than doing it by GUI, because you get to set everything and you don't have to do all these uh, you know, clicks and pull downs, et cetera. We also are offering it as a first come, first serve type of operation. Let me ask everybody with that tip, how many of you have actually worked with satellites before? Awesome. And I'll tell you, it's really cool as well because last year when I came to reInvent, the number was much lower. And so it, it, I feel like it's neat that we're seeing a buildup of satellite operating companies and space data companies coming to AWS and using AWS to deliver their services around the world. A lot of those customers, when we were working backwards from customers, told us they didn't want a system that was built in kind of the older government way, which meant that there was a prioritized uh, schema for who got to use the ground stations at what times to operate their satellites. The customers were like, we really don't want that. We want a first come, first served, and you guys should manage the capacity the same way you manage server capacity, same way you manage uh, uh, storage capacity, and make that transparent to us. So that's the way that we tried to build AWS Ground Station. So we will be watching customer demand very closely, and if customers are showing that demand by reserving lots and lots of additional minutes, we actually have, and I'm, I'm not kidding, we actually have millions of dollars of antennas in storage, ready to get installed and, and put out into the world to take care of our customers' needs as that capacity demand grows. And we want to listen to the customers so that we can know, you know what, they really want a lot of coverage here. They really want a lot of downlink in this area. X-band is very strong over here. S-band in this other region. So that we can listen to you and deliver to you what you want. So that's what we mean by first come, first serve. So, in a traditional context, if you were out there and you had just come up with a great idea, you've got a new payload and a new way that you want to collect data about the world, you would have to go out and start thinking about how do I build my satellite? How do I launch my satellite? How do I operate it and have a network to do all the uh, different compute and analysis and storage and dissemination of the data? And then how do I launch it into space? AWS Ground Station and AWS is here to make it easy for you to be able to plan out the operations of your satellite, build all of your ground control software, all of your analytics, all of your exploitation software as we would call it, and then everything that you use to disseminate that data on AWS. So that you don't need to buy any of the software, any of the compute, any of the infrastructure to make that happen. 
And then we add on top of that the ground station antenna so that we can again eliminate that from you as well. Because in the old days, the only way you could do that is, is build it, make your own global network of ground station antennas, go get the licenses that are required by the land to make that happen. And then in addition to that, now operate it and maintain it. Or you could go to some companies and you could lease that capability from them. There are a couple of different companies around the world that put in antennas and they'll lease it to you, but that comes with a contract and you got to plan ahead and they've got to plan ahead and oftentimes capacity will be limited. Or you could go rent time on a, a, an assemblage of either re, of leased antennas or owned antennas by people because then they, they actually, it's almost like an Airbnb model where if, if I'm not using it, you can use it. But you'll never be number one priority in that case. You're always going to be using it only when it's available when they're not using it. That requires large capital to build. Ground station antennas, typically the cheapest ones you're going to find out there, and believe me, the really cheap ones won't last as long as the very expensive ones. The cheapest ones are about $400,000 typically, and that's not even when you put in the land and the security and everything else. If you're going to buy the kinds of antennas that we're using that you've seen in the picture before, you're talking a much more expensive level of antenna, and then you've got to get your digital signal processing equipment, you've got to get everything else to make it work. It's expensive and it's complex to maintain. We actually have a number of data center operators who are now trained up on how to help take care of our antennas because we have a global network of data centers already. So we actually were ready to build these antennas into that network. The other issue that you've got is, is let's say you've got that constellation I told you about. If you had one satellite, maybe you put in two ground station antennas. You know, that way you could probably talk to the satellite twice a day, three times a day. But suddenly, your, your satellite's doing so good, you want to go build five more of them. You got a really quick launch. Blue Origin was there to help you get a launch, and you got up there for really low cost. And suddenly, you now have four satellites in your constellation instead of one. With us, that would just mean you start reserving more time on the, set, uh, on the system. Those instances are there for you to use, and you just keep on going, and you didn't have to change anything. You just basically scheduled exactly the same way you did before, and you got more capacity. But if you had built it yourself, you'd now have to quadruple the size of your ground station network, your O&M, all the people that have to run it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's expensive and it's hard and it's very hard to scale. We want to make it really easy for you to scale. Another thing that you get away from is opaque pricing. When it comes to leasing activity, uh, usually when you're leasing antennas, quite frankly, when you're leasing anything, you know, you really don't ever have that much insight into what went into the pricing. It's very supply and demand driven. Suddenly you might be paying a whole lot if the supply is very low and demand is high. And then if a really big constellation suddenly doesn't get launched, you're paying very high prices even though there's a, a glut of supply because you signed a contract. So with our way of doing things as an AWS service, you're going to just pay the service, same service price no matter what, the way you do with every other service that AWS offers. And then finally, if you did have to try to build that small ground station architecture and you're really trying hard to coordinate it all, you're going to get contention, which means two satellites need to talk to one ground station at the same time, or you're going to have conflicts often because you kind of have to build just to the edge of your peak demand and you can't really afford to keep going. 
you, you, you just don't want to waste money building stuff so that you have a really low utilization rate. And as a result, if you add more satellites, you could very quickly get into a conflict and contention situation. So now the more fun stuff. How do we do this? We basically, if you guys look up at your presentation screen, so on your left, you basically see our antenna, and it's connected to a variety of services and microservices within our AWS ground station VPC. It's communicating with the spacecraft using RF energy. So satellites communicate with the ground using analog waveforms to get that data down to the ground and digital data encoded on top of that waveform. And it, it's difficult. So you're basically you know, modulating data into a waveform and depending on how much power your satellite emits and how much data you're trying to cram into the signal, that then determines how much your antenna has to be able to receive that data and how much gain it needs to be able to pull the signal out of the noise and actually make sense out of what it's hearing. So we're managing all that for you. And then within our VPC as well, we're managing all the scheduling mechanisms so that you basically just come in and say, I need to talk to my satellite at this time from this part of the earth. And then we also are tracking where your satellites are and keeping track of that data so that we can know in the future when we need to communicate. And then we are wrapping and managing for you digitizers and modems so that we can convert all that data that's coming off of the satellite from the analog world into an IP-based network world. So we can use mechanisms like radio frequency over IP, RF over IP, and we can then move that data through our network using other devices that allow us to flow the data into the network without losing any information. How many of y'all know what the, the favorite protocol of most satellite downlinks is? Yeah, Josh, I knew you would. And so, yeah, so UDP tends to be what most satellite operators like to use. But UDP can oftentimes be unfriendly with the cloud environment. So we've actually built into our system the ability to process that UDP data on the AWS network without losing packets and without them getting out of order. So that you can use our network to transport satellite data without losing anything. Now that data is now going to both from an uplink and a downlink point of view be transferred between your VPC and the AWS ground station VPC. And in your VPC, you're going to be able to use Elastic Network Interface to receive that data from us. I'll get into in a little bit more how we'll configure the streams of data that are coming to you so that you can get the information where you want it to be. And then you're able to use EC2 Compute and you're able to use uh, your own services, your own applications that you wrote to either control the tracking, telemetry, and command of your spacecraft or to downlink the mission data that you get, the data that is used for that satellite to actually make money or make a product for decision makers that they want to see. And now you're right there at the AWS um, service in, in prod and you're able to use all of our other services and features in AWS like our analytics, you can use SageMaker, you can use machine learning, you can use our storage and a whole lot of other services and features all to manipulate your data so that you don't have to develop all of that on your own which is completely different from the way satellites was done 10 years ago, when we literally would write everything ourselves. 
And all of that is built on top of the self-service and automation that AWS's console and all of our APIs and SDKs that work with the rest of those services and features will work when you're doing AWS Ground Station as well. And if you go to our console, which you'll see in a second in the demo, we have an SDK, we have our own API, we've got a user's guide out there as well to help you code and use AWS Ground Station as well. So you can fully automate a machine to machine type of approach of interacting between your space system and AWS Ground Station. And in addition, what you all should want, you're going to have a whole lot of security, all of the same security and application security and physical security that went into making AWS is into AWS Ground Station as well. So you can use our IAM, you can use our roles-based access, you can really control to a very high fidelity. This user can actually fly a satellite, can actually get in and do all these other things, but another user might only be able to access a specific data stream that you want to emit data on. And so now you can actually share data around the world and different types of data with different types of customers and you can control it all from AWS. So very powerful architecture that's really going to help get the, the space world into the cloud. So there's, I'm going to show you key events twice in this discussion. The first one I'm showing you is I just wanted you to see the key events and what happens when we want to get a satellite contact scheduled and then provide that uh, capability via ground station to a customer. So you're going to come in and you're basically going to define a mission profile as we call it, which contains all these different settings and attributes that you're going to set. And uh, you're basically going to just it's like scripting it in and you'll, you'll tell what type of uh, frequency maybe, what bandwidth, what type of polarity, where do I want the data to go, how do I define an endpoint. And then you also give us all the configuration data about how you want to configure both the ground station to communicate with your satellite, how it's set up, and then also data about your satellite and how that's going to be configured so that you can share that data and it's all fully automated. And whenever you use that ground station, we basically wipe it and then bring it back up in the configuration just for your satellite. We flow the data through it and nothing persists. It all goes into your VPC. And then when the ground station contact is done, we take it down again and we clean it out and all of your data is gone and then we reconfigure it for the next user. So true multi-tenant access to this antenna. So when you need to reserve something, you're going to basically be comparing the mission profile plus your configurations and the satellite configuration with the ground station that you need and the time that you actually need it. And when all of those things are now matched up, we'll lock in that reservation for you and the system will execute that contact when the time comes. So how does that happen? Well, first off, the configuration, if you look at this tree, basically I told you how you configure that mission profile. You're going to be setting up these multiple configurations to configure the antenna for the contact. And then those configurations and profiles can also be created by your e API. And then every time you need to use it, you, you basically could just change a few things if you have different satellites, store up all those different settings, and you could use it. The mission profile will basically care about what do I want to track, like for example, do I want to use auto track? Or what data flow edges am I going to be sending data to? So I'm going to then configure the antenna, the downflank, the downlink, and then the data flow endpoint group, where you're going to send the data, where the data comes from, and then the frequencies and everything else that goes into the attributes of how that antenna is going to work with your satellite. 
These are just some examples of those configs. I just wanted you to see that we're not talking like about, you know, incredibly, you know, esoteric data. It's very simple. Now keep in mind, there's going to be like hundreds of lines of this as you configure everything, but it's all the same level of, uh, of uh, you know, complexity. And it's basic stuff that you guys can do. And if you, you'll know this information both from your satellite system and from uh, your uh, AWS accounts. Now, when you reserve the uh, contact, it's pretty much the same as I spoke about. You can do it via API or console. You're basically just matching up all of these attributes with the available capabilities. Basically, our antennas are all letting the system, the control plane know what is available, what capabilities, what frequencies, at what times. And then the system is matching up customer requests with what's available and then locking it in. So I'm going to give you guys a demo in a moment. And what you're going to see is if you look on the left side, first off, basically the configuration of a contact. And I've talked about those different things earlier in the discussion. I'll just show them to you next on a user console as it's done. And then in action, you're going to see the fact that the things that will have to happen behind the scenes will be the antenna configuration, the data flow of where it's coming from and where it's going to, and then how you want to demodulate and decode the data to get it into your VPC so that you can use it later. So the demo is basically going to show that we're going to schedule a contact with a broadcast satellite that actually is flying around the Earth right now and it emits weather data down public broadcast so that everybody can use it. The satellite's called Aqua. And, and it's actually a great satellite for people to use for testing and for having fun. We picked it very specifically for this demo because what I'd like you all to do as soon as this, uh, this uh, conference is done is go home, get on your AWS console, and start to onboard to AWS Ground Station so that you can do exactly what we're going to show you to do. And then if you go look around, and we actually could, would be happy to, if you send us an email, give you the data, there are specific toolkits out there by a number of universities that will show you how to convert the downlink data of Aqua and make pictures out of it so that you could actually make your own weather station on your, your um, desktop and you could receive data from uh, Aqua every day from ground station if you wanted to and make your own images and use that to give you information. So uh, I'll be watching. So I want to see if you guys all get out there and do that. So I'm going to have to talk fast at this part uh, just because I want to make sure it happens. But in this demo, you're going to go into the AWS Management Console first. This demo is five minutes and 37 seconds long. You basically select Ground Station, go up and say, I want to schedule a contact. So you go into the uh, system in the GUI. You're going to basically say, what ground station do I want? OK, right now you're looking at uh, Ohio and Oregon was available. Later you'll see that I selected Bahrain, which is our newest ground station. And then you select which satellite catalog you want. NORAD Northcom in the US does these element sets. That's what the catalog number is. And it's how we keep track of satellites. Then you're looking at all available contacts from Ohio for that satellite. It, you go down, you'll notice that we're going to look for a contact that has the highest elevation because that means the satellite's going to be coming directly over your antenna if the elevation is very high and you'll get much more data from that contact typically. And so uh, you're just going to see mouse and down, selecting it, 
click. And then um, you, you also have to worry then about your mission profile. So you're gonna go up and start selecting what mission profile did I make that I want to use for this downlink. And then you, you lock in, you, you know, you're about to spend money, you're about to reserve a contact. So yes, I wanna reserve that contact. So as it keeps going, you'll notice now, it, the status, instead of being just available, is also showing I'm scheduling. And then we go in and we check, hey, is it scheduled yet? No, you should wanna do this. You should check in on your contact. It still shows that it's scheduling. And so we're gonna keep watching it for a little while until it changes to scheduled. And there we have. So the contact then gets scheduled. So you now know that the system has acknowledged that it's going to do this contact for you. Next, what you're gonna see is what happens when the contact's taking place. Right now, if you look at this, you'll notice this is one of our devices that we use for that UDP traffic. You'll notice we only have WAN traffic going on. Very, very low amount of data as well. And the network basically is ready for the contact to start. So you guys like, hey, I'm gonna go in and check, is it really scheduled? Because I don't see anything happening yet. But if you wanna go look, you can then see, this is a view of a satellite coming over Bahrain, like I told you about. And now we get a, a brief spike in the data. It looks high because the axis is so low, and it pops down because now we've now started receiving data from that satellite at about 13.7 megabits per second. So that's that downlink that I told you about that uh, Aqua puts out there. And so you're basically watching, you look at some of the overhead down there. As the contact progresses, you'll keep watching it, but we wanna give you a little more data. So you could go click on the dashboard and go look at the data defender screen to say, how's my link going? And how's the data defender performing? It's good, excellent in fact. We've got zero uh, packet error loss. We've got all errors getting corrected. Whoops. And uh, now let's look at the um, uh, latency. This is just showing you the latency. You can see in blue the data latency of your data getting into the system from the satellite. And you can also see the, the, the WAN's um, latency. Five milliseconds is what it was showing up there for the uh, WAN, uh, for your satellite data. And so that data is getting from the antenna and into the cloud in five milliseconds. Now we keep, go back and look, the data is continuing to flow into your um, uh, S3 bucket. And uh, what you're gonna see next is I wanted to show you on the satellite catalog that we're actually are talking to Aqua here. You'll see it's right over Bahrain. So that would mean that we're about halfway through this condensed demo. And I'm gonna just mouse over this. By the way, the screen I'm looking at right now is not part of Ground Station. This is something you guys could download on the web. It's just a way of watching where the satellites are. And so just verify that it really is Aqua. And then we're gonna, next I'm gonna show you the contact is about to end. That's where you see it drops off at the end. It goes from the 13.7 megabits per second back down to zero. And uh, we're basically now in a post-pass phase. We're kind of cleaning up in the streams. We're putting your data where it's supposed to be. And you can go check. Now we're gonna watch the status of that contact and see now it's in post-pass instead of scheduled. So it just shows you that, that, that it's actually happened. It's putting everything to bed. And then we're gonna, after that, go look at, well, where did my data go? 
In this situation, I configured an S, we configured an S3 bucket. You could come in, you've got your tree, however you've got it. This is demodded, decoded data. And yes, down there, there it just had happened 1.1 gigabytes of data that were received from that spacecraft. And we, we can then go look at it again and verify uh, there's actually even a link here that you could use to send to someone to say, here's that raw data, you can now go use it. So I'm gonna just talk very briefly again about what happened there. Basically, we had an antenna provider, we had a control plane, and we had a data delivery service that were all orchestrated together so that the customer API could schedule things, and then the antenna provider uh, facing API was able to then make the contact happen, and then we then give you the data. How does that look in the control plane? Basically, on the left, you see us. We register the antennas. We get those contacts, and we update the status. You create mission profiles, as I showed. You set up your configurations. You reserve your contacts, and then you get your contact status. And then when the contact actually happens, those key events again, uh, basically everything on here I've talked about before, but basically we matched everything up for you. We stored the details. We marked it as not available. And then we notified you that the contact was scheduled. You saw all of that in the demo. What did that look like in an architecture? Basically everything I showed you, we update the contact status the control plane set up your data streams during the contact and move that data into your VPC and it ended up in your S3 bucket because that's what you had did with the data after you received it. So with that, I'm now going to turn myself off and I'm gonna let Dr. Soderstrom come up here and tell you about using uh, AWS Ground Station to do this on one of our satellites. Thank you, Shane. Thanks, uh, Tom. Uh, same thumbs up, can you hear me? Okay, you can give me a thumbs down if you want to also. Uh, my name is Tom Soderstrom. Uh, my title is Chief Technology and Innovation Officer uh, for IT at JPL. And uh, I'm especially excited about this. I'm going to show you a few things about space and JPL. And then we're going to talk about where we're going from there. And that involves all of you in particular. That's what makes me excited. This is why we do what we do. This is our goals. We want to be able to answer all these questions. Uh, how do we protect Mother Earth? Uh, where did the universe come from? Where is it going? Is it going to contract and put us to pieces? Maybe, but not for a very, very long time. Uh, how do we divert an asteroid? And if we were unsuccessful, would we have a place to go? So where is Earth 2.0? Does it exist? And is there life or was there life on Mars? And of course, are we alone? So the exciting thing about this, the big questions, they concern all of us, I also believe that many of them will be answered in my lifetime. So help me live a long time. <laughs> but it will be answered by you guys. And it will be answered by all this new technology that's coming up. And uh, by things like Ground Station as a Service, especially about protecting Mother Earth. So JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, is part of uh, Caltech and NASA. We're a federally funded research center. So we operate a lot of spacecraft. We build them. And uh, we. Uh, NASA is our customer, and uh, we work very closely together. We're an enterprise. We're an 83-year-old enterprise. We're, you can see the numbers there. But it, what it really means is we have a lot of legacy. Is anybody in here that works for a company, more than 1,000 people? Raise your hands. Okay. Do you have legacy? <laughs> is it hard to bring in new things into legacy? So that's part of the challenge, right? 
it isn't just a technology. It's we know how to do this, so we don't need something new. But the exciting thing is, yes, we do need something new, and we're starting to realize that. By the way, are there anybody here from JPL or NASA? Uh, raise your hands proudly. And thank you for what you do. This is really the key. And thank you to the rest of you for what you will do. So uh, we have currently 19 spacecraft and seven instruments across the solar system and beyond. Which one is beyond? Yell it out if you know it. Voyager, that's right. And Voyager was launched in 1977. So that's probably 1972 type technology. So talk about legacy. <laughs> How do you change that? Uh, it is, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing spacecraft. Uh, it started breaking almost right away. And we fixed it and fixed it and fixed it over time. And it's been the most successful spacecraft ever. Um, the, uh, we have huge antenna farms. Uh, and that, those antennas are so big and so sensitive and so overloaded. Uh, they're about the size of a football field. And they're so sensitive that they would sense my body heat if I was standing on the moon without a spacesuit, <laughs> which is may be where you want me to be after this uh, talk. Uh, but do you want to track Earth satellites with that? No, not really. Plus, you can't. It, it's loose much too slowly. So the idea is to what can be done, let's have industry help do that. And there's a lot of business in this space. So as you walk, when we go to question and answer, think about what you can do here uh, to answer the big questions, but perhaps also to make money. So you see lots of instruments here. Uh, hopefully, you recognize just about all of them. Uh, this is Last year was a very busy year for us. We launched more spacecraft than we ever have. Uh, so it's a, it's a good time. Uh, what's interesting about this one is our spacecraft are usually have been very large efforts. You know, two and a half billion dollar spacecraft. It goes billions and billions of kilometers away. So uh, Voyager is currently 13 billion miles away. That's a long ways. Uh, so these new ones that we're sending out are starting to be smaller, CubeSats. Was anybody here at reInvent last year? Raise your hands. Did you see the simulcast of the landing of InSight on Mars? We were simulcasting it the same time it landed. Happened to be during reInvent. So how could we do that? Because the problem was InSight was landing on Mars, but as it was landing, our orbiter that would relay the signal was on the other side, uh, so the planet was between Earth and Mars. So you would have been there, and many people saw it, and we would have said, boy, we landed on Mars, we think. <laughs> Wait three hours, and, and you'll know. But we sent two CubeSats out, uh, the Marcos. Uh, they went 150 mi million miles, and they survived. Every step of the way, we went, well, OK. They launched. That's about as far as they will last. Then the solar panels opened. Well, that's about as far as it will go. And they just kept going. Wonderful, wonderful spacecraft. It showed that we can do a lot with CubeSats. A CubeSat is about yay big, like a big shoebox, and very inexpensive to build compared to a huge spacecraft. So it's inexpensive to build, and universities are partnering with us and building them. Uh, it's also getting much more inexpensive to launch. It's less mass. So what about tracking, getting the data down? That hasn't been inexpensive until now. So Asteria uh, was an astrophysics experiment. Uh, JPL came up with this idea of training new employees and building satellites. So Asteria was one of those, from a project called the Phaeton Project. And uh, it was to 
tried to look at astrophysics, and in fact, it was able to detect an exoplanet, first CubeSat to do that. What does that mean? It means that you're looking at a point in the sky for a long time, and ev every so often there's a wobble in the energy. And that wobble can be that a planet is orbiting its sun, very far away. But to detect that with a CubeSat is just amazing. And in the few years we've been looking at this, we've actually detected 4,000 confirmed uh, exoplanets and uh, 4,000 that's being confirmed. That means that somebody else is confirming, yes, our data is right. And of those, 29 are what we call Earth-like, which means that water can be liquid and they have energy. So if we need a place to go, we're starting to find them. Still a little far away. Uh, it takes hundreds and hundreds of years to get there with current propulsion. But you guys are going to invent something new for us. So what you're seeing here is the thing that, that's moving is actually the CubeSat being launched from the space station. It's kind of like the space station dumping it into space. Uh, and that's a very effective way of launching it. It worked. So there were a lot of uh, heroes in this story. And now we're going to switch over uh, to talk about, well, this was exciting. What we looked at uh, was to make it so instead of it's manually controlled, automated. Could we do that with the spacecraft? Another one was, uh, how do you operate if you don't have GPS? How do you navigate? The way our, sta our, our big spacecraft work, they have star trackers on them. So what happens if it loses connection, it goes into safe mode, which is an emergency mode. Bells are ringing. We are really panicking. They orient themselves to Earth. But how do they know where they are? Right? You're in space. <laughs> so what they do is they find a star pattern that we pre-programmed. They, now they know where the stars are, and then they can point their antenna to Earth. So that's how we get out of safe mode. Um, so this uh, Asteria was able to use an Earth orbiting satellite as its orientation pattern. So it, it doesn't need GPS. It's kind of, kind of interesting. So those are the type of challenges we will want you to help us solve. It was able to see a comet come by and see the Pleiades system. So now let's switch over to the experiment. So we wanted to do uh, Asteria, great success. It's nearing the end of its lifetime. So now we can really experiment. Uh, anybody remember Cassini? Cassini was a great mission. Man, it detected so many wonderful things around Saturn. The rings, right? Uh, the last three months, we decided, OK, it's time for it to commit suicide. We don't leave space junk up there. We're going to crash it. So three months, let's take risks. So it dove around the, the rings and did all of these wonderful things. We got more science out of that than uh, ever before. So when you can experiment, like experimenting with these things, then uh, you can do a lot more. And that's kind of the point about this. So with Asteria, we said, OK, let's experiment. So uh, we wanted to see, is it cost effective, et cetera. And you can read all the words. But basically, could it work? Could we document it? Would it help us? And there's a bunch of heroes in here. One is Mike Little at NASA, who said, yeah, this is a good idea. You have Lorraine Fesk, who's the project manager for this. Uh, Peter De, De Pasquale was a programmer, uh, is a programmer who worked on this. And Cal Hughes was the project manager. A lot of people taking lots of interesting risks at the end. So we came up with this concept. This is, as you can see, I'm an artist. Uh, it, it, this is available for sale, by the way, this picture. <laughs> what does Picasso have on me? But the idea was we put this on the whiteboard and said, what can we do? From that we put that picture on the whiteboard till we're actually tracking it operationally was less than a month. 
That's a very fast turnaround for us. And I'll explain it a little bit. So it meant actually moving the software into the cloud using the, the antennas of that AWS supplied. And so here's kind of what happened. I'm going to tell you a little story here. Uh, this is what we wanted to do, and we had it kind of planned out. And I stood up in, the, in front of the executive council at JPL and told, here's, here's the future, what we could do. And we, used, we were able to, we were lucky enough that the, their Ohio station was close to our main antenna. Well, three days later, the main antenna broke. Catastrophic hardware failure. So all of a sudden, we don't do single point of failure, except this was kind of experiment. So we allowed it. Well, that single point of failure broke. So now what do we do? Well, there's nothing like a good crisis <laughs> to speed up approvals and get everybody's attention. So we got all the approvals, and we were able to track it. And so now it had saved up a lot of data. So what we did is we spun up another station in the Oregon region. What does that mean? We don't have to own the antennas. We just literally took the software from this side of the cloud to this side of the cloud, spun it up. So all of a sudden, we could download twice as much data. The other thing that was interesting was uh, sometimes we have the hardware reset it. It takes a long time. So in this case, we're able to take several orbits. An Earth orbiter goes around the Earth about every hour and a half. So it took a long time to do that. It's risky. In this case, it was a hardware reset, sent it from Ohio, was able to downlink the data in Oregon as it's streaming by. So a lot of use cases, and it was uh, absolutely fantastic. Uh, it also, we can have longer tracks. So what does it really look like? I'm not going to go into too much details, because uh, a lot of you raised your hands about satellites, so you know this stuff. But basically, the main piece here is as soon as the data hits the network, as soon as it hits the antenna, it's available for use. It's available for calculations. We don't have to move the data into our systems. That's a big deal. And the data defender there is, is helpful because it means that we're not going to lose any bits. So it, it figures that out, even though it's UDP. Uh, the other thing we've done uh, quite a while ago is to extend internet into space. It's something called the uh, delay-tolerant delay network. So if you look that up on a browser, uh, that was a project with uh, Windsurf uh, and JPL. And it's interesting. It's going to be really interesting once we get all those satellites up there that you will all build. So it's, uh, what about security? We worried about security? Oh, yeah. <laughs> JPL's uh, security officer is sitting there. He's worried about security. <laughs> so Wes and I talk about this a lot. Well, it turns out the network itself uh, is EAR99 uh, compliant. So if you look that up, uh, you'll know what that means. It's a good thing. And it also, all the data is encrypted uh, as it uh, transits. So AWS cannot see our data. Uh, they, I mean, they can transport it, but they don't know what it is. And so those are really big deals. So we were able to get the security clearances done very quickly. And the crisis helped us to get the uh, spectrum approvals very quickly. It's nothing like a spacecraft emergency to uh, get things to happen. And then we put our firewall in, just to make absolutely sure. So we were able to follow the normal cybersecurity requirements, the export control requirements. And uh, that's a big deal. And when I come to the recommendations, I'll talk a little more about that. So this is a picture that was actually uh, downloaded by uh, Ground Station as a Service. And you say, well, that's an ugly picture. But remember, this is a satellite, a CubeSat, that's meant to detect exoplanets and do experiments. So you just turn the camera back on Earth. And imagine if you put your camera on there, what could you see? 
if it's really focused to look at Earth, or it's focused to measure things like ozone, uh, d uh, carbon dioxide, find erupting uh, volcanoes, etc., all over the world, all at the same time. And it's now quite becoming possible. Uh, this is uh, observation of the moon, taking this way. So our recommendations, and then we're going to switch into Q&A, is what worked for us. We were lucky enough to get in early. Uh, I was an early advisor on this project. And so AWS came to JPL, talked to all the experts to see what, what's possible, what's not possible. Is there an interest? Uh, and we found a real use case. There's nothing like a real problem to solve to get this theory into practice and get people to understand it and believe it. And for us ourselves, is it valuable? And then uh, we only tested the uplink. The downlink is okay. Uplink is scary. You know, you could damage the spacecraft, and you need all the approvals uh, after we had a license. And I talked about the saving uh, of the antenna. So our recommendation is do the things early that's going to take time, the cybersecurity requirements, the spectrum approvals, uh, and get a relationship with the, uh, in our case, AWS. It was very helpful. We were sitting side by side virtually, not physically, and all the data was in the cloud, so it's very easy to work on it on a, a browser. Uh, then uh, think through the ground system data processing, and then envision mighty things. What could you do with this? What's possible? So what are the benefits for us, uh, and hopefully for you? Uh, we got everything running in the cloud very simply and easily, and we don't have to own the antennas. That's a really big deal. Owning them means you have to build them. Building them means they can break, et cetera. So you have to have many, not to have a single point of failure. It was easy to automate the passes, and oh, it was easy for me, but the engineers were able to do it very well. And uh, having more antennas means you can extend the passes, the durations. It means you can download much, much more data, and it means you don't have a single point of failure, uh, and it's very inexpensive. It saves a lot of money. Uh, and then the fact that it's available as soon as it hits the antenna. So imagine what that means. AWS is building more ground stations uh, across the world. So now you can have constellations or swarms of satellites, and they can all do different things. You detect the data, do some machine learning on it, and say, I need to re-download it, or I need to look somewhere else. All of a sudden, it becomes this uh, a swarm of spacecraft that can do things perhaps all at the same time. Uh, looking at the Earth through different spectra, et cetera. Um, so they're mighty things. And uh, we're going to switch to Q&A and uh, see what uh, mighty things you might dare to try. And uh, it's fabulous to me that we're at a software conference and we're talking about things like satellites. Uh, I've been at JPL for a long time. I used to program the, the software that runs at the stations. Now I, it's getting abstracted. We will still do the really hard things. We will go into uh, where no one has gone before and because that's nobody else. There's no business there. All of a sudden, this becomes a business, and now there's business to take care of and enable us to do these mighty things about the science and the instruments, et cetera. So I'm super excited about this. The fact that you are here is going to help us all to maybe answer all those big questions. So let's, who has the microphone? All right. And who dares to ask the first mighty question? Great talk. <laughs> Thank you. 
So how can you hear me? So how hard is it to um, to choose which um, ground stations or which antennas you want to use? Say for example, we have a client who wants to control where their data flows. Like for example, they want to limit countries that it can flow to. Is it is it easy to do that? I saw that one chart that you you could click on which ground stations it look like. I just want to understand that. Just a question. Could you all hear his? Is the microphone working? Okay. Good. Good. So, and can you hear me answering? All right. Cool. So. Actually, it's as easy as you saw on the screen from the graphical user interface. You, only, you can select only the ground stations that you want to use. And it's the same way with your API as well. If you're using the API, you could specify only the ground stations that you want. And then quite frankly, you also could take advantage of the way AWS works and you can route your data the way that your customers might want as well. So that you can ensure that the data is only going to the locations and places that you would like it to go to. Does that answer your question, sir? All right, great. Okay, uh, back there and back there. Walk fast. <laughs> we want lots of questions. On your uh, architecture diagram, where um, would the uplink encryption and the downlink decryption be taking place, and who would manage the key material for those? devices? Um, it's a good question. And what we, we prefer to do there is, first off, if we can use software-based keys, you know, we've got HMS and, and other uh, abilities for you to be able to use software keying. And you could do that anywhere in the architecture that you wanted it to be. If you were one of the kinds of customers who actually uses what I would call hardware type one crypto, uh, we would want to talk with you afterwards. And there are ways to take care of that as well. Good questions. Hi, how are you? Okay. Uh, my You're going to have to what... speak up because we can't hear. Oh, we don't have okay. headsets. Can you hear me? Actually. Uh, this is actually a question for Sean. Uh, yes. What frequencies uh, the, currently the ground station supports? What bands, in other words? Yeah, thank you for highlighting it. That was silly of me to have not brought that up. Right now, the ground stations that we've got out there are X-band and S-band. S-band is what most people typically use to uh, command their satellites and receive data about the satellite's state of health. But there are a number of small sats and CubeSats that use S-band for moving data down to the Earth as well, like Asteria does, uh, and then X-band. But a cool thing is, is we're building this ground station now the way that it is, but it's just the start. And so we really want to hear from all the customers. So if there's another frequency band that you need or other locations that you need, or other types of waveforms. We want that kind of good customer input from you guys so that we can build the system now into the system that you need as a customer. And as you go farther out, uh, we'll need different bands. Uh, so some of our other spacecraft yeah, different uh, bands than Just that. a follow-up question to that. What is the plan for the KA and KU space? Basically, the plan for KA and question. Yeah, the plan for KA and KU is as soon as the customer demand is, is, is manifesting itself and we're getting the, the proof that we know that customers like you need it, we'll start integrating that in. We even built most of our antennas with a, such certain configuration that we can upgrade them to KA relatively easily. Good. Then uh, I'd like to chat to you afterwards. All right, sure. Hands for questions, folks? Oh, good, good. Cindy, right behind you, too. Okay. 
Okay, so so a, simp a simple one for uh, the few of us that are not really professionals of this and are more of these as hobbyists. You mentioned Aqua before as one example where uh, basically uh, you can do some experiments and playing uh, with some data. Uh, what are the kind of resources that we would have uh, available to kind of learn about that so that if you are curious and just want to try things? Uh, there's a ton and actually uh, to tell you the truth, there's a number of other broadcast satellites besides Aqua. There's Aqua, there's Terra, NPP, um, I think one called JPSS. If uh, you search for something called the A-Train, uh, you'll see a lot of satellites. What we do is we have the satellites go right behind each other because they look at, at the Earth in different spectra and all of a sudden you get all kinds of information. So several of those. So they can also get data from A-Train. I don't know which ones they, uh, they're there, but it'll tell you. So if you search for it and uh, search for NASA and that, and NOAA has some. Yep. The ones I've been talking about are NOAA related. And so if you did a Google on public broadcast satellites, you'll actually find a number of low Earth orbit satellites like what I just told you about. And then there's also a number of geosynchronous uh, GOES is one of them, as it's known, uh, weather satellites that do public broadcast data. And then other ones in the A-Train, like Tom said. Hey, um, everybody hear me? Okay. Uh, so I saw earlier that you uh, mentioned that it tr you track the latency going through the digitizer and throughout um, the signal that's coming into the dish all the way to your S3 bucket. Is that time tagged or provided as a tag along with the mission data um, when it comes into your S3 bucket so you can do things like geolocation and uh, other services? I'm going to let Brian answer that if you know it, Brian. Uh, yes, yeah, so the, the data that comes down is all wrapped in the Vita49 Vita packets, uh, and that has all the, should have all the, the time coding. Um, if you're just saving it off to S3, the, the Vita49 should still have all of the, the time codes for you. And if you're processing it in real time, you'll definitely have all of that there too. Great. Yep. And one of the exciting announcements is the time stream database. Uh, for us, all the telemetry that comes down, which is the details about the health of the spacecraft, it's all time series based. So all of a sudden you can do that at scale. It's quite interesting. Um, just a quick question. In terms of uh, the RF that's captured, you set the center frequency and the bandwidth. Do you automatically calculate the Doppler shift based on the position of the satellite relative to the ground station so that way you don't have to deal with that in the post-processing? I actually think it could be done both ways. Uh, you, you, some customers like to do that kind of post-processing themselves, but the, the modems and the digitizers that we use are capable enough that you can also work with us to set up that modem properly so that it will address Doppler. Oh, cool. Thank you. Sure. One of the exciting things for us is we don't no longer have to make all the ingredients to make the stew. We can all of a sudden just focus on the stew, the ingredients like that can be handled by others, and that'll be a fantastic thing. So um, next question is, uh, I, I missed the beginning of the presentation. How many ground stations are there spread across the Earth? Right now we have three. We have two in the United States, Oregon and Ohio, and one in Bahrain. And then uh, if you guys keep watching over the, the next three to four months, you're going to see we're going to start launching a, a number of other ground stations around the world. Okay. 
And I, I would tell you, highlight to all of you, as you experiment, Bahrain is a great experimentation ground station. It's very easy to downlink data there. They, they're very progressive in how they regulate their spectrum and, and very fast in terms of letting us experiment with our customers. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Okay. Uh, was your contact configuration capable of automatically kicking off ground processing once the collect had been received, uh, like through Lambda events or something? Yes. For in our case, what we did is we are huge fans of serverless computing. And uh, if you want to hear a story about that. Uh, by the way, did anybody send your name to Mars? Good. That was all serverless. And the idea was to, if we got two million names, we'd be happy. We blew through, over 60 days, we blew through two million names in a couple of hours. It would have killed our servers. Uh, so we were able to handle it, no problem, through serverless. And it was serverless databases, serverless everything. And it was a tenth of the cost uh, to do it. It was a huge success. So this is also serverless. It spins itself up, it spins itself down saving lots and lots of money. And it, it's just now a natural way of thinking about things. So yes, it, it's capable. Uh, and that's a big change. You don't have to really manually do it anymore. You can uh, completely automate it. So great question. And I would say Brian would probably agree. We love Lambda. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> you, you could kick off any number of, of, of functions uh, using Lambda so that you could automate everything. Hi, um, is there any way to schedule workloads across multiple ground stations? So if you want something to happen in succession, would you have to do that yourself or is that something that's being looked at building in? Well, we scheduled it across Ohio and Oregon. That worked. Are you thinking about different countries or? No? So I guess and the answer is yes. And I'm going to let Brian will give you a little bit of insight into some of that type of workflow scheduling across the ground stations. Yeah, so, so as, as Tom mentioned, uh, the JPL uh, Asteria passes, they definitely are, are doing these concurrent passes or simultaneous passes. Uh, if this is something that you want some additional features and some additional support in the service uh, to do, they, they do a lot of that manually on their side. Um, so it's definitely possible today, but we would love to talk to customers that are looking to do this and are already talking with your team uh, to, to kind of figure out how, how we can make this a little bit better, a little bit easier uh, for customers. Great questions. Oh, there. So just uh, obvious here. I was curious, what was the time delay from tearing down a previous session for a customer and standing up uh, the next session for your next customer? And what were some of the challenges you came to reduce that time as much as possible? Brian, what is our time right now? Is it three? Yeah, okay, so right now we're going at three minutes for that teardown, and uh, we're Amazon, so man, every week we're trying to just shave another second or two off. Our goal is gonna be to get to the point that we can fully utilize those antennas and recycle it as quickly as the antenna can go from the end of pass for the last satellite to the acquisition of signal, in other words, where it needs to be waiting for the next one, and have that be the only limitation. 
And, and just so you know, that's pretty quick because our antennas can move at six degrees per second. So uh, that, that's our goal. And today, right now, we're at three minutes. And like I said, we're trying to uh, break it down every, every week that we can to make things more efficient. And one thing I'd like to throw out there, too, because you guys have said, like, you know, I'm just a hobbyist. Man, that, that's what we want. We want you guys to, like, get into this and get captivated by space and want to become a part of the community and keep doing this. So I really did show you an example on purpose that's something that you can go home and do tonight. You, you really could start the onboarding. You could get a contact with a, a public broadcast satellite like you had asked about, and you can use SDKs that are available out on the internet to turn that data into images and other information that you can use. So I really would encourage everyone in the room, please get out there and play with it. And it's, it's, it's low cost. Most of these satellites, you, you could have fun and like for $50, you could literally build your own you know, satellite ground station uh, setup that would create products for you and take pictures of the Earth. One other thing that's really exciting is the builder community that's building up is, it isn't just software. We used to have a hard time to have software and hardware people talk to each other. So one of the things we did was we created an open source rover. It looks just like the Mars rover, just smaller. And uh, Tuesday we issued a challenge, uh, which is if you go to uh, spacechallenge.tech, uh, it's all about adding autonomous driving to the open source rover. And there's a lot about reinforcement learning. It's using RoboMaker and it's using uh, SageMaker. But that, who, the winner of that will get $15,000 from AWS and they will get to put the software in the open source rover. And so we're thinking about these type of challenges of just adding more and more and more. And that was created for high school students to learn about hardware, software, engineering, and having to work together. And we're seeing the, it's a software conference, but the, everything is about software now. It's about building things, putting it together, and then starting to tinker with the hardware. Uh, sensors, uh, it, it's a fantastic opportunity for all of you, I think. And just so everyone knows, this will need to be our last question because it's time for us to end the session. A uh, quick question then, is uh, Leo and Mio the uh, only, uh, orbits you're looking for, I mean, opportunities? In that again gets into customer, uh, working backwards from customers as to what they need. We started with low Earth orbit, medium Earth orbit, so that we could go after a big part of the world that is already processing a lot of their data on AWS, but as customer demand for geosynchronous uh, orbits or beyond becomes greater, we're gonna keep building the capabilities our customers need. Well, thank you all again. Thank you so much. Really and we would like it. to encourage you, yeah. Please uh, go out and complete the session survey in the mobile app so that we can keep making reInvent better for you. And enjoy the rest of reInvent.